0: SARS. Typical pneumonia, typical pneumonia, acute Phydean. Phydean.
1: SARS. stock markets collapsed, People millions flood affected Washington areas, Washington. and panic swept world the globe.
0: Remember SARS, severe acute respiratory syndrome. It's 10 years since the first case emerged, the 16th of November 2002, in China. But the world wouldn't know the name SARS or what it was until the following year.
1: There actually were several alerts to WHO. And finally, WHO said, we need to know what's going on, and we sent someone from Geneva to the WHO office in China, in Beijing.
0: That's David Heyman. Today, he directs the Centre on Global Health Security at Chatham House. Back then, he was at the World Health Organisation. He was executive director in charge of communicable diseases. Communicable
1: diseases or infectious diseases at the World Health Organisation.
0: In this Chatham House feature, he's going to tell us what it was like inside the WHO, while I look at how it felt in China. For WHO, this was a methodical operation, while in affected countries, it felt anything but, and we'll dip in and out of each interpretation.
1: Well, our laboratories were on the alert, but they were not able to get into China, and the person who WHO sent to China remained in the WHO office. So there was a real lack of collaboration at the start. Then there was a series of SMS messages that went off from people in the Guangdong province talking about a pneumonia. And then, again, WHO went to China. And at that time, they declared that this was actually an outbreak of a bacterial pneumonia. And again, they said that it had been controlled and was finished.
0: In Guangdong province at the time was a teacher who we spoke to who doesn't want to be named.
2: Back then, I was teaching English in a school just south of Foshan. It was quite distant and isolated, around an hour from downtown Guangzhou. I wasn't aware of SARS until maybe early 2003. That was because the school actually told me to stop taking students out of school for extracurricular activities.
0: Two more people to meet. One is me. My name is Conor Walsh. I'm the multimedia producer at Chatham House. Back then, I was a student in Beijing, as was this external voice, Suzanne.
3: So I'm Suzanne. I was in Beijing during SARS. I was there as a student during my exchange year abroad.
0: She and I reacted to SARS in quite different ways. And we can say the same about the authorities.
3: Nobody had a clue what was going on at the beginning. At that time, I was doing an internship with a foreign news correspondent. So I was following what was going on in the city in general as well?
1: Well, when the first case of SARS occurred, we knew that there had been a serious pneumonia with death in China. Our fear was that this was actually avian influenza, which had first surfaced in 1997 in Hong Kong and was thought to have come from China. And after 1997, we were watching very closely. The world was watching closely to make sure that an H5N1 pandemic didn't begin. So logically, when we heard that there were some deaths from pneumonia and that hospital workers were being infected as well as people in the community, we were very concerned.
0: I remember probably around that time or a little bit sooner seeing headlines in the newspapers that down south, there were people dying. And then that was over,
1: gone. The Chinese announced that, yes, they had had an outbreak of atypical pneumonia with high mortality in the Guangdong province, but that it was finished. There had been about 400 cases and it was finished. So when they said that, we had no option but to continue looking outside of China to see if any cases were occurring outside China.
0: And there were Hong Kong right next to Guangdong, high population density and a tourist destination.
1: Two things happened in February. First, there was a national of Hong Kong and his child who returned through the Guangdong province into Hong Kong and the child became sick and it turned out that that child was infected with H5N1. So then the alert was even greater that this might be a pandemic beginning. But shortly afterwards, uh, from um, Vietnam, there was a report of an adult male with very serious pneumonia who was on a respirator, who was a businessman who had been in Hong Kong before he flew off to uh, Vietnam. And so this case was reported from Vietnam, a very serious pneumonia.
0: And that's the beginning of the story that most of us remember.
1: So we called into action the WHO Collaborating Centers on Influenza, which create a network of laboratories around the world that do um, a lookout, if you would, for influenza. And they were put on alert to watch to see whether or not there was a pandemic beginning in China. The Chinese government did not report anything at that time. On the 12th of March, WHO sent out a global alert that there was an outbreak of an atypical pneumonia occurring in Southeast Asia and that this outbreak was very lethal in persons who had already been infected and the health workers were at great risk. Two days later, on a Friday afternoon, Canada and Singapore both reported that they had similar outbreaks of disease which appeared to be linked to Southeast Asia.
0: The next day at 2 a.m., the WHO duty officer gets a call from the government of Singapore. It wasn't a good call.
1: Not only was the disease occurring in Singapore that one of the doctors who had treated cases in Singapore had gone to a medical conference in the U.S., had become sick and was on his way back with his wife, who was also sick. And so the Singapore government asked us to get him medical care where the plane stopped, which was in Frankfurt, which we organized. So on the 15th of March... We sent out another global alert, and this time we decided that this needed to be an outbreak containment alert. Now, that Saturday morning in Geneva, after the report had come from Singapore, um, a group met with the director general to discuss what was going on and pointed out to the director general that this was probably a new disease that nobody knew how far it could travel or what might occur, but that the same thing that had happened to HIV could happen to this disease. In other words, HIV came from animals, probably a non-human primate to humans, and then was able to spread and become widespread throughout the world. We said that this disease could become another HIV, or it could disappear, or it could become a disease in animals. And so the director general decided that there should be a global outbreak containment, stop the disease while we could, if it was possible, so that it wouldn't become an endemic or a widespread disease.
3: I also got to read all the news tickers. So I got an additional information source, but other than that, you really had no clue what was going on. And I think you just heard a little bit at the beginning from the news, but it was such tiny amounts of information that you really couldn't picture anything. And
0: And an indistinct picture can become a scary picture.
3: I remember it as a build-up of people acknowledging the, the illness and the epidemic and it kind of slowly registering. And because the information had been held back before and then only kind of came out little by little, people got afraid because they didn't know what to expect.
0: I was on a bus one day when someone started coughing like crazy dry, barking cough, the type that we'd been reading about online. And I moved down the bus and I got off at the next stop and I couldn't understand why no one else did.
3: I think it just developed. Like, at the beginning, people didn't know anything and because of that, after a while, they got really scared and then everybody stayed at home and it got really empty and... And other than that, it was just really... So different to see Beijing completely empty. Because Beijing usually is so full of people and like especially also of elderly people who, who are outside in the park, you know, doing their sports or their Tai Chi or they're just moving around and and suddenly like Beijing was empty.
0: Yeah, and you know the green and yellow buses used to be jammed solid, like you'd yeah. squeeze in and they were just empty. There were these empty vehicles going down the road and it looked so, so strange. Oh, there was a lot of eeriness to it for me.
3: Yeah, it was was a completely different Beijing.
1: But the story goes back to Hong Kong with a doctor who was treating patients with this disease in the Guangdong province. He left the Guangdong province to go to a wedding in Hong Kong and he already had a fever. And he became very ill on his way to Hong Kong, stayed overnight one night in Hong Kong. And it was in this hotel that the first case that came to attention in Vietnam stayed, along with people who returned to Canada, to the U.S., to Ireland, to Singapore, and to Thailand. So this was the beginning of an outbreak which spread rapidly around the world because of air travel.
0: What did you think when that first case, the early cases were spread by doctors, by medical professions who knew they were unwell?
1: Well, first of all, it's clear that medical personnel are at greatest risk of a new and emerging infection because nobody recognizes what it is and they're taking care of patients and they can become ill just as they did in all these places. Doctors many times travel when they're ill. I'm sure he didn't think at the start that he had this disease or he wouldn't have left Guangdong. He was going to a wedding. But by the time he arrived in Hong Kong, he was very sick. So when he became sick, and this is probably about the seventh or eighth day after his infection, he then became very sick and spread the the disease to others. Just one night in a hotel.
0: Just one night in a hotel when he just didn't know. Again, that Uncertainty.
3: People left or expatriates left to go home and um, yeah, but I stayed because of my internship and because um, my dad's a doctor <laughs> and he told me not to worry too much. <laughs>
0: really? Yeah. What was his basis for that? What was the explanation that he gave you, the rationale?
3: Well, through his job, yes. A lot to do with um, epidemics, etc., And so he says that usually it's hyped up a lot and, and made to sound more dramatic than it actually is. By whom? By the media.
1: Well, you know, to a certain extent, um, this is what happened. People were very confused about what to do for the disease. It was known early on that the disease was only spread by close face-to-face contact. There was a glitch when there was an outbreak in an apartment, which was soon solved in Hong Kong. That was an outbreak due to a fault in the sewerage system because the virus was also carried in in sewerage. But after that fault, it was clear that this was only face-to-face communication. Yet the press were telling people to wear masks even though they weren't in close contact. And then people would only wear the mask when it was convenient. When they had to eat, they'd take it off and eat. So in the end, even if it had been an effective intervention, it wouldn't have been because they took it off. They just they didn't understand the issues and the press didn't do a good job of helping them understand.
0: Was that very difficult? I mean, presumably they were your greatest ally as well. That's right.
1: The press and most press was very good, but the, the Hong Kong press in particular was a little bit sensational at the start. But by talking with them, by helping them understand the issues, they were no longer um, sensational. Yet the cameramen continued to wear masks when they went out to film, and people were just so afraid that they did whatever they thought might help them. But the press is always an ally in an outbreak, and the more time you spend dealing with the press and helping them understand the issues, the better the result is.
0: I mentioned earlier that while we were in the same university, Suzanne and I reacted quite differently to SARS. My parents were phoning every day and, in contrast it seems to Suzanne's, they were worried. When I had the choice of renewing my visa or not, I joined the queue of about a thousand foreign students that snaked through the campus, got my tuition fees refunded and booked a flight out of there.
3: It came to the point where all the um, migrant workers also wanted to leave the city. And they were piling up at the um, railway station trying to leave the city. But the government had not allowed them to to leave the city. And so they were camping in front of the railway station for a couple of days. And I went there to interview them. (laughs) What was that like? It was just bizarre seeing everybody camping in front of the railway station. And yeah, I think it was just a build up because at the beginning um I also went into the hospitals to to interview people. Did you? Yeah. You're nuts. <laughs> and then at the beginning like you could just walk in into the hospitals, it was no problem. And then the second time I went there, I always went to the same hospital because it was close to the office. And the second time, um, you already saw the doctors and the nurses wearing those cotton masks. And then the third time I was there, the gate was already closed, and um, family members who were outside were trying to communicate with the family members that were inside.
1: After the director general decided that there needed to be a global containment activity, it was then important to develop a name Because if a name was not developed by WHO or by uh, the people who were dealing with the outbreak, the press would have named it something like Chinese flu or Beijing flu, which would be very stigmatizing to populations. So it's very important to remember if you ever do discover a disease to give it a name right away. I remember sitting in a taxi going
0: to a travel agent's to get my plane ticket. And on the radio, they read out what purported to be a text message from a SARS patient in the hospital saying that they were suffering and asked for support from the public. The taxi driver leant over the steering wheel and kind of snorted and said,
1: It can't be that big a deal. The Chinese didn't report. And then the director general of WHO took a bold move and, and said publicly that China was hiding cases. When she did this, and this was Dr. Brundtland, when she did this, the next day, the vice premier, Madame Wu Yi, was on a plane to Geneva. And she talked with the director general uh, for a couple of days, returned to China, and then it became a matter of civil importance, not health, but civil. And this is often the case Diseases are not just a health issue. They're sometimes an issue that involves many sectors, which was the case in China. It involved markets, it involved market workers, and a whole series of things. So China immediately set up screening sites in all communities for people with fever, isolated those people, and did a very good job at stopping the outbreak in China.
0: Back to the English teacher in Guangdong province. She left the school, quit her job.
2: I left for Shanghai on 30th of April. Not many people were wearing face masks at that time, but I did see people in full white protective clothes at Guangzhou Airport. I stayed at my boyfriend's place in Shanghai, and they had to report to the local police that they had a visitor from Guangdong, and I was warned not to leave the house for a week. Someone came to visit me and test my body temperature every day in the beginning, but they then gave me some forms for self-check. I did sneak out once, I think.
3: We were always joking that um the people who profited from the outbreak were the people who sold DVDs because everybody stayed in and everybody bought tons of DVDs just to have something to do at home.
2: But of course all the other businesses suffered. <laughs> I remember going to a get together in May or June with two friends. They came to Shanghai from Beijing. We joked that we should be locked up for such a get-together.
0: So it was controlled by July, I think.
1: That's right. In July, the, the second incubation period after the last case was completed and the outbreak was announced uh, over. And this was almost to the day, the day that the Director-General Dr. Brundtland, who had been at the head of this outbreak, uh, left WHO and uh, retired from WHO.
0: Then at the end of the year, by the end of the year, in Amarkas, it had
1: re-emerged. The Chinese reported that it had re-emerged, uh, and the virus was never seen outside of China. But I think that this was a one-time emergence. This is what the, the laboratory people say by looking at the genetics of this that this was a one-time mutation, that it's the same virus that spread around the world, and that it, it was a chance event. So I'm not saying that it won't occur again, but it would be very unlikely that this same mutation occurred by chance again, either in an animal or in a human. what did happen though as you know was that there were several laboratory accidents after the outbreak one in singapore one in taiwan and a couple in china
0: well that's what happened in 2002 and 2003 is there a legacy now from sars
1: in may of that year may of 2003 there was the world health assembly And at that assembly, a resolution was passed that laid out the way that countries would need to work in the future. And then it was only a matter of a year until the regulations were revised it also permitted who to demand of a country what was going on and to work with them in confidence to set up the measures which would prevent that disease from spreading internationally so it it revolutionized these regulations and these regulations instead of now being based on four diseases cholera plague yellow fever and smallpox are based on what's called a public health event of international concern so that there's a decision tree and if an outbreak fits in with that decision tree in any way, then it's considered a public health emergency of international importance, which is what happened with the pandemic of H1N1.
0: Do you think it was responsible for you to go around into hospitals and just talk to as many people as you could? With hindsight, I mean, at the time, how did it feel and how does it look with hindsight?
3: It feels the same. Like, I don't think I was acting in a very um, unresponsible manner. Um, Yeah. I don't know. I wasn't afraid then. And I don't think I did something stupid now. So.
0: Had you been in a pandemic zone before?
3: No, but I think a big part of it is simply that my dad said that I shouldn't worry too much.
0: I think that's... So, y- yeah.
3: y- you no, know, it's like your parents yeah. say, have a completely different reaction. Yeah. So. I
0: think that's exactly it and I think a lot of it was what people overseas felt about it. Um,
3: uh, I don't know whether I agree with that. I think it's also I mean, because the There was also panic inside the country, so Mm. I don't think it's just like what people overseas thought about it. It's also what people inside the country thought, but I think that what they thought or the fear that, that was going around had a lot to do with the information politics.
1: And the world learned several lessons. One of the major lessons was that the world could work together on an outbreak such as this. They could share information publicly, and they didn't hold it until they could publish it. The online journals were helping in getting information out very rapidly. But the fact remained that it was identified within a month, and that information was not hidden or not disputed as it was with HIV, for example, 20 years earlier. Unfortunately, as I said, in this outbreak, the world did work together, and there was a group of epidemiologists from around the world, people who studied the patterns of the disease, who understood how it was transmitted and who was at risk. There was a group of clinicians, doctors who were treating patients, exchanging information on what medicines appeared to be working, what wasn't working. And finally, there was a group of virologists who were looking to find out what the cause of this disease was. So here were these three groups by means of WHO, exchanging information among themselves, which is very unusual when all this exchange occurs. But it, it's, it's reason for hope in the world in the future that this is happening. And in fact, the Wellcome Trust at present is supporting a network of uh, researchers around the world to look at emerging pneumonias and uh, respiratory infections and to gain experience in... Exchanging information and studying these diseases together. So there have been many spin offs from the SARS outbreak.
0: That was David Heyman closing this feature on the 10 years since SARS. Find out more about global health security on chathamhouse.org.